Welcome everyone. It's good to be with you again. My name is Jason Dexter and today we're continuing our study of the book of Ruth. We come to the last chapter, the climax of the book, Ruth chapter 4. And in this study we will see the conclusion for Ruth and Naomi and for Boaz. Do Boaz and Ruth end up together? Well, you have to stick around to find out. But one of the things I love about studying Old Testament scriptures like this, these narrative stories, is the richness of the characters within. Although they lived in a very different time than ours, their customs were different. In this passage, we see their marriage customs are different. There are so many things in their lives that we can apply to our lives today. And I believe that every single passage in the Bible is relevant. And when we look at it with the heart to take those lessons and obey them, then they will transform our lives. So let's go ahead and read Ruth chapter 4 and dig into the characters and see what we can learn from them. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Ruth, the, that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife, and he went into her. And the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the Lord said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. 
He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Okay. So we're going to get into this passage and really try to bring out the character qualities of these different people inside. And the first one we're going to take a look at is Boaz. Now, if you remember from the last verse in chapter 3, Naomi had told Ruth not to worry that Boaz was going to quickly deal with this matter and bring it forward. Uh, In verse 18 of chapter 3, She said, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. So Naomi told Ruth that Boaz would not rest until he has settled it today. She knew what kind of man Boaz was. And we see that her observations of Boaz are true. In verse 1 here, it says that Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. So Boaz straight away went to the gate to deal with this issue and to move things forward. Now the city gate is where important transactions would take place. So Boaz immediately started the ball rolling. First, he notified his relative whom he wanted to talk to. And then he got a group of elders together. Notice throughout this passage that Boaz is taking initiative. So this is the first character quality we can get from him and apply to our lives today. Boaz is proactive. He takes initiative. He is a man of action. A man of action. When there is important things to be done, he doesn't procrastinate and wait around until the last possible moment. Now I think... Some more wishy-washy men might drag their heels. They might want to wait a little while first. Some might want to enjoy their last days of freedom as a bachelor. Some might want to see if a better offer comes up. Some might think, Ruth, yeah, she's nice, but she's a Moabite. Maybe I'll reconsider those nice Jewish girls. But Boaz knew that Ruth and Naomi were waiting for his decision. And he knows that prolonging that period of waiting would be agonizing for them. So he says, I'm going to settle it. I'm going to move forward and see, uh, see how to bring this to the next step. So he decided, I'm not going to prolong this time of uncertainty for them. Now, throughout this passage, we can see Boaz is really an honorable man. And I emphasize man. Men, you need to learn from Boaz here. Be a man of action. Be proactive. When there's a clear course of action that God has has shown to you, then do it and don't waste time. Don't also be wishy-washy toward ladies. Are you interested in a lady? Is she a believer? Have you prayed about it and received wise counsel? Are you ready for marriage? 
If the answer is yes to all of these questions, then you can go forward, take the next step, be a man of action. On the other side, if you're not ready for marriage for whatever reason, then don't play around, don't pretend, don't waste ladies' time. I've been around some Christian sisters who had wishy-washy guys pursuing them and kept them waiting for years and never moved forward to marriage. It was truly, truly sad for these Christian sisters and wasted so much of their time. Let's not do that. Now, second character quality from Boaz is that he was open and transparent. He did this at the city gate. And then he also took, it says, 10 men of the elders of the city. So he did this in the open. He did this in public. There was nothing underhanded. There was nothing sneaky. There was no, you know, under the table deals going on. His actions are open in the public for all to see because he has nothing to hide. His affairs are conducted at the city gate. Now, at the city gate, anybody who is interested could just stop there and listen into the conversation and observe the proceedings. And if necessary, they could chip in and say something relevant. Thus, it was more like the modern question we sometimes ask at weddings, which we probably never expect an answer to. If anyone knows a reason why these two should not be joined, let him speak now or forever hold his peace. You've probably never heard anybody speak out at when that question is asked. So, But this was the kind of thing that was going on here. Boaz met the elders and this other relative at the city gate. He did things in an open and transparent way. And this is important. In 1 John 5.5, 5, we are commanded to do this. Oh, sorry. 1 John 1, 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus' son cleanses us from all sin. We have fellowship with one another. Okay, so the lesson from this verse is to walk in the light. Boaz invites 10 of the city elders to come and join him. Now, I'm guessing that when you start a, a courtship or a dating, you probably don't do that. And of course, this is not a custom which we practice today, but there is a principle there. We should be willing for others to hold us accountable perhaps a godly mentor or a close Christian friend. Now, these were not only witnesses, but they were also city leaders. Thus, they were spiritual authorities. They had the authority to step in and correct Boaz and tell him, you're doing this wrong, this is the wrong thing to do or the wrong way to go about it, if he needed this correction. So Boaz was humble enough to submit himself to their authority and their leadership. And that's very important. One area that many young believers go wrong in the area of pursuing a relationship is that they do it by themselves, independently, not under the supervision or accountability of godly, mature believers who can encourage them and correct them if necessary. 
we should be willing to submit ourselves to that authority because it will help us to stay on track. Now, I'm not teaching a marriage seminar here, but as I'm going through Ruth 4, I realize that many of the principles in this passage do apply to ladies and men, young, single people who are looking to get married. It applies to relationships. And it also applies, we'll see later, to married couples as well. So singles, your relationship should be open and transparent, completely in the light. God has established the principle of asking counsel in order to protect us from our own pride and subjectivity. Proverbs 11.14 says, For lack of... When there is no guidance, a people falls. But in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. So we don't want to enter into this most important decision, marriage, with no counselors, with no guidance. There is safety in asking for the wisdom and help from godly, mature believers. Another lesson you can get from this is you should conduct your relationship among God's people. When you start dating or courting or whatever term you want to use, don't get away from church and do it just on your own and think, ah, there's fewer eyes watching us. That's not what believers should be looking for. Instead, get together in the church. Now, I don't mean you have to only see each other in the church building. When I say the church, I'm not talking about the building, but I'm talking about God's people. The church is God's people wherever they are. So spend time with each other around other believers. Spend more time with each other in group contexts so that other believers around you can encourage you and help to keep you accountable to walk in the right way. Be humble to listen to and ask for counsel. If you do, you'll have a much healthier relationship since it's on a strong foundation. Now, as we go forward, we will see that Boaz was very clear and respectful in his communication. In verse 3, he just lays out what's happened. Naomi's come back. There's a parcel of land. And so uh, one person should buy it. Uh, Who? You or me? So he just spells it out in a very clear way. He has clear and respectful communication. In verse 1, he called his friend to turn aside. He said, turn aside friend sit down here so we see that boaz is very clear and he's very open and he's very respectful in his communication and then he clearly lays out the case he just tells concisely what the facts are he's not wasting time talking about the harvest or the weather the world cup or the olympics he has a task he has a mission he wants to finish it And he's not embarrassed or shy. Instead, he is bold and confident. And he communicates in this way because he has nothing to hide. So again, we're thinking, how do we take these qualities and apply them to our lives today? And once again, it seems that the application fits singles. Be clear in your communication. And as we're talking about Boaz, we're especially talking about men. Men, if you want to start a relationship with a girl... Be clear. Don't start with something vague like, so you want to go with me? Or even, will you be my girlfriend? Or, 
You know, how about let's have a cup of coffee? Okay, you know, what do those things mean? What does it mean you want to go with me or you want to be my girlfriend? What's the purpose of the relationship? How long is it going to last? What's the goal of it? Now, a long time ago, fathers used to ask guys interested in their daughters. They would say, what's your intention toward my daughter? Guys, do you even know what your intention is? If your intention is just to have a, a good time, but you have no desire for nothing further, girls, just, you know, you can just say, get lost, right? I'm not interested in just, just doing that. Now, I'm not talking about friendship, right? You can certainly be friends and do things together and, and have a good time. But I'm talking about this kind of sort of relationship, but not relationship that's not very clear. Nobody really knows what's going on. If you want to have a relationship and you've asked counsel and you have examined what the Bible has to say, you're doing it from a Christian perspective, you both want to honor God, then move forward. But be clear in what you are proposing, in what you are suggesting. For me, many years ago when I asked my now wife to start a relationship with me, I used the word court and I asked her if she would court me, and then I said, don't answer yet, let me tell you what I mean by that. And I said, I believe that courtship is a period of time when two people come together to intentionally get to know each other for the purpose of considering marriage. So I'm interested in marrying you, not guaranteeing right now I'm going to, but I'm interested in it, and I want to get, you know, get to know you further as we consider that together. So it had a very clearly defined purpose. And that clearly defined purpose guided us in our relationship as we sought to get to know each other better. So clear communication can help you start your relationship off on the right foot. Now, if you start your relationship off with clear communication, then you and your spouse will never have any problems with poor communication again. No? You do? Okay, so of course, that's not quite 100% true, right? Clear communication is something that we need to continue to work on again and again. So here are a few simple tips for a husband and wife. Again, as we seek to take this clear communication principle from Ruth 4 and apply it into our lives. Now, the first one, this one is really complicated, so I want you to get out your notepad or bring out your phone and get ready to write this down or type it in, all right? The first principle for a husband and wife to have good communication is this, talk. All right, it's not that complicated, right? But it's very important. You need to have quality time talking to each other about everything. For the couples who are already married, how much time do you actually spend talking to each other? I'd like you to think about that. Think about each day how much time you spend talking. Now, for many couples, it is shockingly low how little time they actually spend talking to each other rather than doing other things. So sometimes you need to turn off the electronics and just talk to each other about your day. Now, a second principle is do not make assumptions. Don't try to guess what's in the other person's mind. Ask more questions. I understand what you are saying, 
Or, sorry, I understand you are. I understand that you're saying such and such. Is that what you're saying? And get feedback so you can try to really understand what the other person is saying, and practice fair fighting. This is something when my wife and I, before we got married, we received some counsel from a pastor, and he said, "Practice fair fighting." We believed, of course, we're never going to fight. Right? We're really in love. It's never going to happen. Of course, it does sometimes. Now, fair fighting means you only di- you discuss the facts of the case rather than reverting to attacks against the other person, like you always or you never. And we also don't bring out other things from the past that you already solved and dealt with. Now, probably you never fight, right? You only discuss things loudly. But even if that's the case. Then you should practice fair, loud discussion, and make sure that you are not attacking each other. You are attacking the problem in order to find a solution. Now, going forward, we're going to learn the most important character quality of Boaz, and that is that he is a redeemer. In verse five, Boaz said, "The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite." The widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Okay, so the redeemer was supposed to purchase the fields, the land that belonged to the deceased, and then his job was to keep those, the the land and the fields in his possession to then pass to the descendants. Of the deceased when they were ready to inherit it, to keep it, and then if there were no descendants, at least to keep it within the family, to keep it within the tribe. But in addition to this, they were supposed to marry the wife or the widow of the deceased in order to raise up offspring for the dead, so that their line would continue in Israel. So this is a very interesting、uh, concept. It's called levirate marriage, and we're going to read a little bit about the background of this in Deuteronomy twenty-five, five through ten. Now it says, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say. My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, "I do not wish to take her," then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, "So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house." And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. <clears throat> so here, God institutes what is called levirate marriage. Now, this was a way to protect and take care of widows and to keep alive the deceased's name 
an inheritance. Now, in the text, we see that a brother is the first one responsible in this. By the time of Ruth, the Jews had expanded this to extended members of the family. Now, as we see in this passage, this marrying the deceased, uh, the deceased brother's widow was optional. A man could decide he didn't want to do this. Then what? Well, in Ruth, we see, we see that then they would go to the next one in line. So this was a very interesting cultural practice which they did, uh, and a reminder that during those times, marriage was quite different than now. A lot of times it was arranged, perhaps arranged by parents or by other relatives. In Ruth, we see Naomi taking a hand in more or less arranging this marriage between Ruth and Boaz. It was, uh, marriages were often for practicality and for, yeah, for reasons like this to, in this case, to protect the line of the deceased. Uh, so that was very important in those days. Now we should note here that this was an optional thing uh, and very likely if, yeah, so this was optional and you could choose not to do it. But to do so, people would recognize that this was something of a disgrace for you. If you refuse to carry about uh, this responsibility you had toward your deceased family member and his wife. So Boaz was then the second in line. <clears throat> so this other relative was first in line. But we see here in verse 6 that the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. So Boaz calls this guy because he's the first one in line. He's the first one with this responsibility. But he has the option to say no, and he would only have to do it if he was willing to do it. So the first said, I cannot redeem it. <coughs> then Boaz happily agreed to redeem her. Okay, so the man says, take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. And then he gave him the sandal. And uh, he told Boaz in verse 8, buy it for yourself. So because he was going, because Boaz was going to redeem Ruth, then he also got to buy the fields. And then Boaz in verse 9 says, you're all witnesses. And then he goes on to say, I'm going to do it. I'm going to redeem her. So this passage <clears throat> is the culmination of a really beautiful story of redemption. Redemption. Now, Boaz is what we would often call a type of Christ. He is a figure in the Old Testament who points to something about Jesus, who shows us some character qualities of Jesus himself. Now, the aspect that Boaz points to about Jesus is that Jesus is our Redeemer. So what parallels can we find in this story? Well, first, there's only one Redeemer. They could not both redeem Ruth. Jesus is the only one who is qualified to redeem us. He's the only one who is qualified to save us, okay? And also redemption is an act of grace. Boaz was not required to redeem Ruth. He chose to, just as Jesus chose to redeem us. Redemption is also public. Boaz redeemed Ruth in public, and Jesus redeems us publicly on the cross. Redemption is also an act of love. Boaz clearly loved Ruth. He cared for her. He wanted what was best for her. 
Now, being a Moabite, she was not someone that most men would have chosen to love, but Boaz did. Now, Jesus, too, loved us while we were still sinners. Redemption also comes with a price. The Redeemer would have to give up something. In this case, money was required to purchase the field. But it also meant giving up some of your own rights. The relative was not willing to redeem Ruth because he was not willing to give up his rights. He wanted to pass his own land down to his own children who had his own name. Boaz was willing to pay this price. Jesus was willing to pay a far greater price for us, his own blood. Now, redemption we see here is also priceless. So on the one side, it has a price. Boaz and Jesus gave something up in order to redeem Ruth and us. And at the same time, it's also priceless because it can't be paid for. Ruth could not pay Boaz back for this. She had no money to offer. She was a peasant. She could never pay back. And so we too can never pay back what Christ has done for us. It's completely unearned and undeserved. We also see redemption is irreversible. At the end of this passage, we see the other relative remove his sandal and give it to Boaz. The deal is made. The contract is finalized. There's no going back. The decision is final. Once we are saved, Jesus will not cast us out again or change his mind. We also see that redemption must be accepted. Ruth had to be willing to accept Boaz. Now in this story, Ruth asked Boaz to redeem her. If Ruth did not want him, then it would not have happened. So Boaz, he does the work. He agrees to pay the price himself. But it's still a two-way road. Both sides had to agree. Ruth had to say yes. In a similar way, we have to say yes to Jesus. He gives his life for us. He sacrifices himself, but he gives us a choice. We can choose to believe in him. Have you already said yes to Jesus to accept his payment on your behalf to be redeemed by him? If not, then I hope that today will be the day. So what is the result for Boaz? Boaz graciously and kindly says, I am going to redeem Ruth. What happened to him? Well, verse 11, all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So they say, we are witnesses. We have witnessed what you've done, and it's a good thing, and we want to give you a blessing because of what you've done. So Boaz receives great blessing from all the people who witness this. They bless him with a great family and a great house. And this blessing comes true. We'll see in a few moments in the closing verses the genealogy of Boaz. He was the great-grandfather of David. And that means that all of the kings of Judah descended from Boaz. And Jesus himself descended from Boaz. So Boaz was remembered. He did indeed become famous, just like they said in verse 12. 
But Boaz didn't do this out of selfish ambition. He didn't do this out of a desire to be famous. He had no idea what was going to happen. He didn't even know, of course, that he was going to be written about, like here in the book of Ruth. He did it because of love and because of compassion. He selflessly gave what he have, what he had, in order to redeem Ruth. And then God gave him many more blessings than he had before. So for Boaz's sake, we see that he is a man of action. He has clear communication. He takes initiative and is proactive. And he, when he knows what he should do, then he goes and he does it. So there are very many good qualities of Boaz. And most importantly, he is a redeemer, which points us to Christ and the fact that Christ is also our redeemer. Now quickly I just wanted to point out this unnamed relative. He's he does we don't even know his name. He could be called the forgotten one. Now notice in verse 4 how quickly he agrees to buy the field. Okay? So Boaz tells him uh, if you want to buy the field, you can. And the guy says, sure, I'll redeem it. You know, I'm, I'm willing to do that. No problem. I'll add this field to my estate. Very happy to do so. He's quite willing to increase the size of his estate. Now, I'm wondering, where is this unnamed relative the rest of the book of Ruth? The first three chapters don't mention him at all. When they were in need, he wasn't around. There's no reference that he went to ask about their well-being that he attempted to help them in any way. Now, I admit this is not a complete record. Perhaps he did. But it appears that he's completely absent from the story. And in verse 6, he says, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. What does he mean? Well, if he married Ruth, he would be required to support her children. This would be a financial expense. If you have children, you know what I'm talking about. But although the first child would be biologically his, in legal terms, the child would be the dead husband's. That means that the field that he himself just paid for would be passed on to the child. And in essence, go back to the brother. So he's evidently like many people who make all decisions based on dollars and cents. But to him, the dollars and cents don't add up. So what happens to this guy? Was he rich? Did he get the happiness that he wanted? Well, we don't know, obviously. But there are two possible results for people who set their hearts on financial gain. The first is that they never get it. They may never achieve the riches that they long for. So they will be miserable and unhappy. Okay, they, they set their heart on getting a bigger house, a nicer car. They don't get it, so they're unhappy. The other solution is they do get it. They got the nice house. They got the nice promotion. Their bank account is filling up with zeros. But they will then also find that that is disappointing and it cannot make one happy. So the application for us is if you set your dream on riches, you'll be disappointed whether you get it or not. So we've looked at Boaz, we've looked at the forgotten one or the so-called unnamed relative. Uh, let's take a moment and look at Naomi. 
Now, the book of Ruth could just as well be called the book of Naomi because she is a very key figure in this book. Now, look at verses 14 through 17. Then the woman said to Na- the, then the women said to Naomi, "Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap, and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed, who is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now the picture in these verses is quite different from back in chapter 1. In chapter 1, she and her family had left Israel, the promised land, for Moab. Lost everything there. Came back empty. She said, I'm going to change my name to Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has afflicted me. So she's bitter, she's resentful, and she believes that she has lost everything. She feels very empty. In chapter 1, we learned though, that Naomi was going to start experiencing blessing again because she returned to her source. She returned to God's will for her life. And in chapter 4, we start to see this coming true. She's not empty anymore. She's not bitter anymore. Her cup is full. In this time, when they called her Naomi, she didn't tell them, don't call me that anymore. No, she accepted it when they called her Naomi. She didn't say, no, 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 my name's Mara, my name's Bitter. She accepted it. Now, the meaning of Naomi is pleasant. She realized that her life was pleasant. Psalm 16, verse 11 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In God's presence, there is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, are you more like Mara or Naomi? Have you perhaps gone your own way to pursue your own thing and in the process you become bitter or resentful or at the very least empty or unsatisfied? Come back to God. Come back to your source. Ask him to fill you up. Set your hope on him and he will make your life pleasant. He will give you satisfaction. He will fill you in that place that is empty. He will give you joy. So I would encourage you to think, is it possible that you have drifted from the Lord? Maybe like Mara, you've left some good things that he's prepared for you and gone off on your own, but don't stay there. Don't stay there. Today you have a chance to come back to the Lord. You can come empty-handed. God will accept you and fill you and give you his joy. If you're feeling empty, then I hope you will come to him and that he will fill you up. I want to read a verse on that from John 1, 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In some translations, as out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace. So we receive, oh, that's verse 16. Yeah, here we go. From them, sorry, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. 
Okay, yeah, so verse 16, not verse 17. He fills us with his grace if we will but come to him. Now, another character I want to mention briefly is Ruth, whom the book is about. Now, Ruth was lost and now she's found. In verse 11, it says, May the Lord make the woman, that's Ruth, who's coming into your house like Rachel and Leah. And then again in verse 13, it says, Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Okay, and then she had a son. And then in verse 15, it says that Ruth, Naomi's daughter-in-law, is better to her than seven sons. So Ruth was redeemed. Ruth was redeemed. Here's a girl who grew up in a culture of idol worshippers. So depraved that they sacrificed children to their gods. Her culture and her family were clouded in darkness. It seemed in that dark place that the chances of knowing God were very small. But fast forward a few years. Now she's a follower of Yahweh. God accepts her and this is symbolized in the fact that Ruth accepted her. No longer is she an outsider. She's married to one of the most respectable men in the city. And she receives a blessing. An amazing blessing and an amazing compliment. A blessing that the Lord would bless her like Rachel and Leah, two of the matriarchs of Israel. A foreigner, a foreign woman elevated to a very high status as one of the important family members of the house of Israel. Just like we, when we come to Jesus, he elevates our status. Now in verse 15, she's given an amazing compliment. The people say she's better than seven sons. If she wasn't already sparkling on her wedding day or the day she gave birth to her son, this would indeed must have made her sparkle. But notice that God gets the praise. In verse 14, they say, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. Blessed be the Lord. So they recognize that this amazing story we've been studying is made possible because of the Lord. So we've seen that God brought Naomi from a place of bitterness to a place of being pleasant, giving her satisfaction and restoring her soul. We've seen that God provided a wonderful, godly young woman for Boaz to be his wife and to raise up offspring to him. We've seen that God brought Ruth, a woman who grew up in an idol-worshipping dark culture, to himself, saving her, redeeming her, bringing her in, and then giving her a family, and making her to be one of the ancestors of Jesus himself. If you read through the genealogy in the book of Matthew, I believe you can see that Ruth is one of just several ladies mentioned. So God brought her from a very from a place of very low status and then elevated her to a very important position as the ancestor of Jesus and the great-grandmother of David. Now, there's another person in this story I want to briefly highlight, and that is Jesus. Now, Jesus is not mentioned by name, but there are a few passages in the Old Testament that point to Jesus as clearly as this one does. We've already seen that Boaz is a type of Christ. Boaz redeemed Ruth. It cost him financially. He had to give up something for her. 
but he loved her and the price was worth it to him. Now Jesus did the same for us. Romans 5.8 says, But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In Ephesians 1.7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Jesus paid a far higher price than Boaz did. He sacrificed his life. He gave his blood for us. Now, Boaz could have legally said, no, I'm not going to redeem you. Jesus could have done the same thing. Our sin was our problem, not his. But he loved us and he gave himself for us. He freely sacrificed his life on the cross for our sins. And he did this of his own choice. Now, the word redemption means the action of gaining or regaining possession of something in exchange for payment, the clearing of a debt. He made the payment for our debt of sin and in the process gained possession of us. Now, I read another story of a man who went to a slave market and he saw a delicate girl being sold there as a slave. He felt compassion for her. He didn't want her to end up as a slave, so he bought her and then he placed a certificate of freedom in her hand. As she looked at it and he started walking away, she started shouting, My Redeemer! My Redeemer! I want to be your servant. His act of love inspired her to respond with love toward him. So an application for us, Jesus paid the ultimate price for us. In this story, we are kind of like Ruth. He has brought us into his family. He has extended his arms of protection over us. He has redeemed us. How should we respond? We should say, my Redeemer, my Redeemer, I want to be your servant. I want to be your servant. Now, if you've never accepted Jesus' offer of redemption, then please don't wait. It is a free gift and he wants you to have a relationship with him if you have received his offer of redemption are you satisfied do you feel your life is perhaps empty like naomi's was then come back to him come back to god and ask him to fill you up the greatest thing ever done for you is done by jesus redeeming you with his own life this is good news let us tell this good news to those around us so they can have the same salvation that we have. I hope that you have enjoyed our study of the book of Ruth. We have learned many lessons from these amazing characters, Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz, and most importantly, seen God, his provision, his providence, and his redemption of us. To see our entire library of over 800 Bible studies, please visit our website at www.studyandobey.com.